Welcome inside the Midlife Pilot Podcast, episode 14. It's a, uh, well, it's a podcast all about uh, flying in the middle of your life and uh, all the various challenges and adventures that come from that. Uh, my name is Chris Moran, also known as the Midlife Pilot on YouTube, and uh, Brian Siskind is alongside the uh, Nashville Music Row uh, Midlife Pilot extraordinaire. How are you this evening, sir? I'm doing great. I just got back from a, a, a quick one-hour jaunt uh, flying up here in some pretty intense haze. Uh, it reminded me of some of the training I did when there was the forest fire smoke going around. Mm -hmm. uh, so that was fun and um, a little bit of cloud hopping. And uh, yeah, I'm just glad to be here. And I'm super excited about this one because it kind of came together really fast. Um, it sort of happened, uh, but we've got a great guest tonight. I'm super excited. Yep, me as well. I have not been flying much. I flew, uh, I took the Cessna, the Skyhawk out for a um, kind of a test flight, if you will. We had, we've been struggling with some GPS uh, integrity problems since we upgraded the panel last year and mm. tried some stuff. And so I got the fun time of taking it out to try to break it and uh, could not break it. So that's encouraging. I think we're on the right track. So I got about an hour this week for that, but that's all I've done. Uh, leave Monday for a trip to Newport News in the Cherokee in the two thirty-five. So that should be a good time. Back to your 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 um, the the secret lair is not actually going for work and uh, uh, taking a coworker with me. In fact, nice. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Well, so, so um, I wanted to ask you how before we get into this this first uh, aspect of. Uh, the topic for tonight and kind of weave in our guest, I wanted to ask you, um, have you had any experience in the maybe the last 50 hours or so where it just really dawned on you that this is something all new that I was either not prepared for or hadn't heard of or did not get in my private pilot training? Is there anything that sort of stands out or a scenario you had to get through or? Um, I'll tell you this, and this kind of comes back to what we've been talking about offline a little bit, which is that if you've read The Killing Zone, you kind of know the principle, right, of we're in this stage where it's things are starting to seem like we know what we're doing a little bit. And um, so I will say that I have not felt unprepared, truthfully, for about anything that I have found myself in. Yeah, uh, but I did have on our on our fly in a couple weeks ago at the Outer Banks. Uh, actually, when I went down the week before you guys came, I had the first my first official land and hold short. Um, mm. I had a really pretty busy like base to final sequence where like a lot was happening at one time, um, and there were a lot of planes and they were running two two different runways. They were using two zero and two five, and there was just a lot of stuff and. Kind of on final, the control, the tower controller said, uh, "You know, uh, Cherokee one five two, can you accept the land and hold short, short clearance?" And I thought that's funny. All my time, I've never had one officially because hmm. I had to turn them down on my solo. I've had a couple requests when I was a solo student, but had to turn them down. And I had already done my homework on that airport, like you're supposed to, right? I knew the runway configuration. I knew I had like seven thousand feet before the intersection. I'm like, well, if I can't put this Cherokee down <laughs> in seven thousand feet and stop, I have bigger problems. So I was like, yeah. yeah, I can accept that. But I thought that was weird. That was my first land and hold short, you know. So yeah, no, but I think things every time I'm learning more and more on these cross countries, every time I go out there, something slightly different or something I haven't experienced before or some yeah. interaction with the controller on flight following or whatever that's different. Well, I've got, I've got, you know, a, few, a handful of things, but, uh, I'd like to kind of hit our, our 
fantastic guest with with some of these things but uh let's maybe go ahead and get uh our guest introduced yeah. and then um make sure everybody knows in the chat that uh we you put your questions in there and then and we'll make sure that they get answered for sure so uh, let's welcome in our special guest tonight carrie mccauley carrie is a uh pilot a ferry pilot internationally a skydive uh guru over twenty thousand jumps and an author of the book uh ferry pilot nine lives over the north atlantic which i've been uh, reading a lot about uh today and just kind of uh, getting familiar with him but a ton of background he's going to join us tonight carrie thanks so much for uh coming on the podcast with us to talk about uh some of your adventures my pleasure guys thanks for having me Absolutely. So, so tell us a little bit about, and Brian, you can jump in here too, but tell us a little bit about your, so for folks who may not know you on the podcast, uh, a little bit of your background, like what's, what's kind of your story in aviation? Well, I got my start back in 1980. So that really makes me feel old. I joined the army and became a UH-1H Huey crew chief. And from then there, I went and got my pilot's license, started flying skydivers and Learned about being a ferry pilot and made that my goal in life to be fly small airplanes around the world. And when I hit about the 1500 hour mark, got a job with Orient Air out of St. Paul, Minnesota and started flying small planes around the world. And I've been doing that ever since. Um, running a skydiving school, professional skydiver, owned planes uh, since 86. I think I got my first one. And currently doing all of the above, plus I just a few years ago, as my midlife crisis got type rated in Citation 650 and started oh, flying a little corporate just for the heck of it. Well, and apparently caravans are pretty easy to fly, right? You've, you've also flown those? Yep, got a lot of time in caravan. Uh, we we <laughs> lease a, carav- a grand caravan at my skydiving school in Minneapolis yeah. area. Um, so, and I ferried a couple of them to Thailand and around the world and they're a pretty easy plane, um, obviously, because somebody with zero experience just put one down just fine. So, <laughs> so, so I, I, mean, I could talk to you all day. Um, uh, here's a question for you. I, I think about all the times that I've done new things in aviation, you know, sort of key moments, even in the sort of young uh, time that I've had, you know, just the first solo to the practice area. <laughs> I mean, just some of these things, you know, seemed so monumental and were such a key kind of pivotal point in my journey and my experience and, and all of that. So let's take that and then multiply it times a million. How did, when you did your first actual ferry flight, you know, where you're like, okay, this is the first time I'm going over and this is happening, you know, like, was it something that you almost had to desensitize yourself to the sort of the realities of it, or you just you kind of just kind of send it, you know, or is it something that you just hyper prepare for, or is it a little bit of both? Uh, how do you like what talk to me about what it felt like to do the first sort of uh, foray into, into ferry pilot? You know, it was kind of all of the above. Um, it was very surreal. It, it, it almost like you couldn't accept what was really happening. You know, my first, my first flight overseas was a beach duchess from St. Paul to Lisbon, Portugal. And the first couple of legs, you know, we went from St. Paul to Bangor, Maine, and then Bangor up to St. John's, which is an island off the coast of Canada. And then when that, that first takeoff out over the water, I mean, the next leg was going down to the Azores. It's 1,700, almost 1,800 miles. And when you're sitting there 
looking at the end of the runway and you can see ocean beyond. I was like, wow, am I really doing this? I mean, holy cow. But I tell you, the, the moment that it really kind of hits you is when you're out over the water and you look over your shoulder and you see the shoreline disappear. And then you look 360 degrees around you and there is nothing but water. That's when it really kind of hits you like, holy cow. <laughs> Anything goes wrong, I'm in trouble. And so, and it's very true, right? That you, you have like the phantom hearing syndrome, right? Like you get out over the water and things start to. Oh, sure. Was that favorite. vibration always there? Did the engine sound just right? And it was like everything. It's and especially at night, you know, that's, that's even worse. You know, the lift slides off the wings at night, they say. So. And so, and I find it interesting also that, um, and sorry, Chris, you can jump in anytime. I'm just going to rapid fire because I have so many thoughts on this. So like on one hand you have to be a person that's kind of not an adrenaline junkie but a bit of an adrenaline junkie right like you skydive and you do all these things um you have a level of excitement that you prefer in your life but at the same time it, when you're doing one of those flights especially you know i've the longest thing i've done is flown like six hours in a day and for me that was you know, that was like uh, a pilgrimage, you know, <laughs> it was like an existential uh, experience, you know, but I just wonder, I find it interesting that there's a contrast between the sort of the meditation of long flight that's uh, essentially sort of uneventful, hopefully, versus the, like the kind of protracted adrenaline junkie experience versus the kind of immediate, you know, mainline experience of jumping out of an airplane. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I do have a pretty high level of risk acceptance. Um, and there's a lot of planning that goes into it and a lot of training. You know, I, I really think about every possible contingency as much as I can. I read everything I can. You know, education is key. But when you're actually out doing it, you can't sit there and be terrified or full of adrenaline for 14 hours. You know, right. just, It's just not possible. And then you're right, it's different than a skydive or skiing down a double black diamond run or something like that, you know, motorcycle. You're kind of like a wary truce with the, the the fear, you know, just kind of put that aside and concentrate on what you're doing. And But after a while, it's just like I, you have to accept where you are and what you're doing and put another tape in your Walkman and listen to some Pink Floyd and enjoy the day. <laughs> right. Well, hopefully it has auto-reverse. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that's old school. I, I got better stuff now, you know, <laughs> instead of a, a handful of tapes and batteries, you know, and I got hundreds that's of songs right. and I can play through my A20. So that's pretty nice. So, so, um, so in your book, um, let's talk a little about your book, the fairy pilot. So obviously there's, um, I've just kind of read, you know, I've read uh, front and back covers and inside and just trying to kind of get a, get a feel for things, but obviously there, um, ferry piloting is inherently it exposes some additional risk maybe than you know um flying your own beloved 172 around that you maintain and is always airworthy and everything is perfect all the time and so you've had some certainly had some um some pretty exciting moments you know flying planes internationally do you any a couple that may stand out or a couple examples even that are in your book of some moments that are that were some of the more uh you know the uh high risk or hair raising events that you've had? Sure. Um, a lot of them. That's, that's why I wrote a book. Uh, a couple of the bigger ones, you know, one of the more exciting ones was I was ferrying a 210 to Tanzania and 
on the, the leg from Morocco down to the Ivory Coast, which is over the bulge of Africa, you fly that leg over the Sahara, you fly it at night, so you arrive down and by the equator in the morning So because the afternoon's got a lot of thunderstorms. And three hours into that night flight, it was about a 14-hour leg, um, I had an RBL come on. Um, RBL is a really bad light. Those are the red lights in your instrument panel you never want to see. And I had uh, lost, my, lost my alternator. And I couldn't turn back because as I was leaving Morocco, a sandstorm had come up and closed the airport behind me. So I was kind of committed to continuing on. And I had to fly basically eight and a half hours by flashlight IMC because um, there were no, there's nowhere to land all the way across the entire Sahara. And once the sun finally came up, um, you know, then I, I had no, no avionics, no GPS, no nothing. And I had to find this city on the coastline someplace and I had to come up with some unique solutions to my problem. And that's kind of one of my strengths, you know, I've, that I've learned over the years is you can, if you got time to panic, you got time to do something more productive so I can put that panic aside and figure out a solution to the problem and, you know, keep swinging and made my way there, had to buzz the airport to wake the tower guys up and pump the landing gear down and no flaps and almost got thrown in jail. And, you know, just average day as a ferry pilot. <laughs> now, and, uh, and in all fairness, there's, I, I appreciate your brevity here because we, we want to cover a lot of things, but there's so many details to that story that I know that are just out of a movie. I mean, like the, this is the same flight, the same scenario where you, uh, but with the briefcase, right? The, that was the next day. You mean where that guy with a shotgun? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was the next day. <laughs> <laughs> well, so, you know, people need to, you know, dig around, find uh, the more expository versions of your stories and then ultimately buy your book. That's what we're here to, to make sure that people do. But um, I want to turn the corner a little bit because, you know, and, and part of me feels like such a doofus being such a young uh, pilot, you know, and experienced 150 hours to be talking to somebody like you that's been through, you know, more in a couple of days than I have in the entirety of, you know, we, 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 we like to do a lot of martyrdom around our training, you know, like this was so hard and it's the hardest thing I've ever done. And, you know, the other day I had this bad landing and, you know, we, we get really worked up about really small stuff. You're, you're definitely a, a bit of perspective, but, um, you know, the way that this all started was, you know, I had been sort of polling people, uh, trying to find out what are some of the things that you, that private pilots don't get trained on. Um, that perhaps you think that there should be some training on, or maybe it's just not as rich of a training as it should be or, or something like that. And I thought that your uh, mention of, uh, you know, people may bring up the obvious, right? Like spin training, you know, uh, and some of these things, but you brought up, and I guess the, the wording would be essentially inadvertent um, scud running under sort of lowering ceilings and, and terrain ultimately, or just inadvertent scud running. Yeah. Um, that's kind of one of my, my pet peeves or things that drive me nuts about flight training is CFIs really never cover that. And the scenario I'm talking about is not going out and purposely scud running, you know, Hey, I got a day here, the ceilings at, 800 feet and I, you know, for a hundred miles and I think I can make it. 
Right. Um, it's the day that somebody goes out and pushes a situation too far and gets himself into trouble and they don't know how to handle it. And that's, that's what I really want to talk about, you know, and not necessarily how to avoid that situation per se, but what to do when you find yourself. Cause you know, one of the things that kill a lot of pilots is that inadvertent VFR into IMC conditions. You know, you got a guy that doesn't have an instrument rating, uh, the plane's not equipped for it. It's a surprise to him. And all of a sudden he finds himself, in the clouds and he's not prepared for it and 90 seconds later he's spinning into the ground and it's, uh, and it's over so that's that's what i really you know think is think is important and something that really gets missed so so if you do find as we in, inevitably find ourselves in, in that situation um uh you know what? What would what would be some rules of thumb or mental kind of pointers or advice? Um, you know, and obviously you don't want to be in the situation, just like the VFR to IMC situation. You want to avoid it, but you know when you're in it, you you need to do some things. Um, so if if you are in a situation where you're where you're scud running, I th- it seems to me like one of the things that would be hard to do is having enough situational awareness to manage. Um, you know, threats with, you know, towers or terrain or whatever, you know, at the same time trying to figure out how to get out of where you are, like having such a localized focus of what's right in front of me and what might I run into versus how do I get the hell out of here? Yeah. Well, there's, there's three main rules to think about when you get in that situation. Number one, don't fly into the clouds. Number two, don't fly into the clouds. And number three, don't fly into the clouds. It's not necessarily that simple, but that's that's the big one. What what most pilots do when they find themselves in that situation, the guys that get into trouble aren't the guys that fly too low. They're the guys that fly too high. They find themselves scared of the ground, so they fly as close to the ceiling as they can to avoid being close to the ground and the radio towers and cell towers and power lines. You know, they're literally dragging their tail beacon through the through the undercast. And that's when you find yourself accidentally flying into the clouds. Because most of the time, these cloud la- bases are not smooth like a, like a ceiling. You know, it's, it's ragged. So when you're not paying attention, you're, you know, you're, you're busy. You got to remember, you, you find yourself in the situation like, holy crap, I wasn't supposed to be here. I'm in trouble. That You know, you're also, you're worried about breaking FARs, which should be the furthest thing from your line. Who cares at that point? Right now, don't die. And you're looking at your GPS and you're trying to get maps out or you're doing stuff and you're staying high. And all of a sudden, uh, you know, you accidentally pop up into the clouds and now and now you're there and now you're screwed if you're not ready. So what you need to do is fly as low as you need to to keep good visibility in front of you. That's the other thing that's that's bad when you're up against the undercast is that's where the visibility is bad and you can't see where you're going. So you don't see that rain shower or snow shower in front of you or that tower that's sticking up, sticking up into the clouds. Um, Fly down low, as low as you need to fly. Now, yes, what you should do at that point then is turn around and get yourself out of that situation. But just like people who get lost in the woods, pilots are the same way. They hate to turn around and backtrack. They get to that situation like, I can make this. I can get through. It's supposed to be sunny at my destination. So they push themselves further and further. They get themselves deeper and deeper into trouble. 
the cloud lever gets low, layer gets lower and lower, and pretty soon they're in real trouble. Most pilots are very, very scared of the ground, though. And, you know, rightfully so. Mm-hmm. There's bad stuff in the ground. You should try to stay away from the edges of the sky. But the clouds are more dangerous. So what do you do when you find yourself having to fly low? And by low, that might mean 100 feet. I mean, that sounds insane, you know, but what if the clouds are at 200 feet? I mean, you you either stay out of the clouds or you punch up, go on instruments, call for help, pop up IFR if you've got the skills, or stay under the clouds. Mm-hmm. So number one, you know, slow down. Don't be ripping along at 75% power. Slow way down. If, you, if the ceiling is so low and the visibility is so fast that you're scared, you're not going to see the obstacles in front of you right away. Slow down even further. Throw not your flaps down. Just kind of putz along. You're trying to tiptoe the heck out of there. Keep your eyes in front of you. Don't sit there and stare at your iPad for you know a long period of time. You know, look up. You got to get your scan going. Keep an eye out what you're doing, and try not to run into stuff. You know, power lines and TV towers are the big ones. Power lines. It's hard to see the lines. But you can what you can see are the telephone poles. That's what you see. You look up, you look in front of you, you notice a road. Almost every road, assume every road has power lines in front of it. Um, you have to be really low to hit the little ones. Now, the big ones, the big high tension lines, they stick a couple hundred feet in the air. That can be a problem if you find yourself in a really bad situation. One option is if you can't go over them, go under them. Now that's a last ditch move, but better than popping up into the clouds if you're not ready um and another option is stop flying land i've had a, I have a really good friend of mine was flying a skydiving plane up to from minneapolis to north dakota and of course the plane he didn't have an instrument rating the plane had zero instruments in it and the whole area thunderstorms and he just i tried to talk him out of it but he just insisted and he took off and he got about halfway and the ceilings got lower and lower, thunderstorms in front of him. He finally tried to turn around, thunderstorms behind him. He was literally trapped. And he just put it down on a, on a county road and pulled into a farmer's yard and sat there. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. That's The FAA couldn't care less. They would much rather talk to you about how you survive this situation than scrape up bits of aluminum all over that farmer's field. For sure. That's that's great. Um, Kerry McCauley is our guest uh, tonight on the Midlife Pilot Podcast. He's author of uh, the book Ferry Pilot, Nine Lives Over the North Atlantic. Um, Jay Little asks a great question. You were talking about the, your your friend there in thunderstorms. Uh, he was reading, apparently, from your book or about your book, Plane, Plane Struck by Lightning. What's that like? <laughs> it's loud. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was ferrying a Turbine 206 to Switzerland, and I was on the leg from the Azores to Portugal. And I flew into, there's this cloud in front of me, nice day, and a stratus cloud, a nothing cloud, maybe a 1,000 feet thick, a couple miles wide, really nothing at all, not, not, not even a cumulus cloud. And I just wasn't even going to bother flying around it. Why about, you know, I just piled right into it. And I hadn't been in it more than 15, 20 seconds, and kaboom, lightning bolt hit the prop. The propeller had a big re- Christmas tree wreath of fire. Um, it was, it was extremely loud. You can't imagine how loud it was. And I have no idea. It scared the hell out of me. I have no idea. I had ferry tanks in the plane, you know, 180 gallons of 
fuel, and I don't know why I didn't turn into a million pieces of aluminum confetti. When the plane, the lightning left, it burned a hole in the wing root about the size of a 50-cent piece. It melted the right main tire wheel. It bubbled it like in a you hit it with a uh, with a torch, and it took a big chunk out of the prop. So. Wow. You kind of want to avoid lightning. I, I did that. You know, I, I experienced you guys don't have to. So off my bucket list. <laughs> this is totally an aside, but have you ever seen the Warner Herzog documentary from the 90s about the woman who was on a plane in Peru and the plane got struck by lightning and the plane just came apart? She fell from 10,000 feet, still strapped to her row of seats and came down landed in the jungle survived and then hiked out of the took her 12 days she was 17 years old at the time and she hiked out for 12 days through stingrays and piranhas and crocodiles and uh you know all this and uh got out and lived to tell the tale it's the craziest thing but she when when you're talking about the the instance of like the moment when the lightning hit it reminds me very much of, of that story. And by the way, you can find that documentary on YouTube. It's the most insane thing you can ever see besides whatever Carrie's telling us right now. <laughs> I've heard of that. I haven't, I haven't seen, I do need to watch that. I heard a lot about that. So our friend Mark, uh, one dog geek has a question as well. He said, as a new private pilot, almost everything is new. And I frequently find myself forced to learn something that I hadn't anticipated. Do you still have that? Or does that eventually end? Uh, those, those learning moments get fewer and further between because I've gone through just about everything, but every once in a while, I like, well, that's a new one. I hadn't hadn't seen that. Um, Yeah. Nothing springs to mind recently. (laughs) So, 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 so basically the answer is it ends. It just takes (laughs) 40 years and 9,000 hours. (laughs) Pretty soon you'll have experienced everything and. So I had one, Brian, you asked me earlier and I, I forgot, this would be interesting to hear Carrie's take because he's flown just about everywhere. But so like, so I'm, I live in West Virginia, so I'm at like my, my airport elevation is like a thousand, a thousand feet MSL, but like just to the east of me. And now these aren't, I'm not talking, we're not like Rocky mountains over here, you know, in the Appala- Appalachians, but you know, I have, I have to cross whenever I go to the East coast, you know, there's 4,000 foot hills or you know the guys in the rockies would call them hills we call them mountains i don't know what you call them but i had my first experience with um kind of mountain wave uh on my way to the beach uh, about a month ago in a 172 a reasonably under underpowered it's one of the older it's a 66 it's got 140 horsepower continental engine in it and so i'm putzing along and i thought i was in good shape at like 7500 feet but i had a 50 knot tailwind so i knew there were significant winds i'm crossing these mountains perpendicularly so i'm you know 3500 feet above them and before i even realized what was happening i looked down on my vertical speed indicator and i'm climbing like 1500 feet a minute and if you know this 172 it doesn't climb 1500 feet a minute <laughs> in any best case scenario like you know so i'm like trying to fight the thing and nose over and like deal with it so i i mean i, I knew what was happening based on my position to the hills and i understood and i thought well if this is happening now on the upslope of this i can kind of guess what's going to happen on the other side um, and it surprised me equally as much. It took me full power at VY, you know, to maintain altitude on the other side of the hill. Um, 
do you have any uh, mountain flying? Ex- I mean, that to me, that was a new experience. I mean, I, I knew what it was. Like I had been trained to understand the physics of kind of how the wind works, but it, that first moment when I looked down and realized what was happening, it kind of did catch me by surprise there a little bit. And I thought to myself, that's part of the reason we leave some separation there. Cause if I had been a thousand feet above and the wind had been the opposite direction and my first, in, you know, my first run in with the mountain wave was on the de- you know, the descending side, I could have had a problem there. Yeah, I've ha- actually have experienced that and going the way that you went the uphill side first, you don't want to fight that. You want to take all the all the altitude it's going to give you because you're gonna it's going to take it away on the other end. So, yeah, you you really got to watch when you're when you're flying over mountains and the the winds running perpendicular to ridge lines and stuff like that. I can't remember what the formula was, but when you you, you look at the winds aloft where it's hitting the cl- the tops of the highest peaks, and for every ten knots, twenty knots, something like that. You want to be. You want to clear that mountain peak by a thousand feet. So if it's a super windy day, you better clear it by quite a ways, or pick another day. Um, I had a friend of mine coming out of Denver in a four twenty one, and he thought he was clearing the mountain peaks by twenty five hundred feet. He thought he was fine, and that thing he caught. He he was coming from the east, so he caught the downdraft first, and it flipped him over and pushed him down toward the rocks and they were pretty scared there for a while. He thought he was going in for sure. So that's great. That's great advice. I I crossed like four ridges, um, all perpendicular. So after the first one, that's what I said. I said, well, I'm VFR. I'm just going to ride these the rest of the way and just let it. So, you know, like it kind of evened out exactly how we thought it might like it. You know, I rode it up on the way over and then down and ended up right where I started. But it was, uh, that was really my first time feeling it. It kind of was, I was surprised by how strong, I mean, it, it just kind of surprised me how much force there really is there. It was uh, pretty significant. It was pretty, mm-hmm. pretty wild. I had a similar thing where I had a, a new mountain flying experience fairly recently, but I had picked up somewhere. I have no formal mountain training, um, but I had picked up somewhere that you want to fly not perpendicular to the mountain, that you want to do it at an angle so that you, if you encounter you know, winds coming up, you, you, you don't have to work as hard to get away from it, to get, to just deny the situation. Um, but either way, it was the strangest sensation because I, I was kind of at an angle and I just realized that we were just, it was like, I'm, I'm, we're passengers now. <laughs> this is not, it's a strange feeling when you, when you, 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 you don't have complete control over what's going on. Uh, Carrie, I know this is probably painful uh, newbie stuff for you, but it's, uh, you know, you were new at some point, right? I mean, it was probably, I mean, you know, I mean, Led oh, Zeppelin sure. just put out their fifth album or whatever, <laughs> but. <laughs> you know, I, I love this stuff because you're never told to stop learning. I, I do learn stuff all the time. And even, and there's sometimes I'm reminded of stuff that I've forgotten. As somebody told me years ago, I'm like, oh yeah, I remember this guy telling me about that. I forgot all about that little tip. Um, because, you know, in aviation, it sounds like you guys are on the right track. You're trying to learn all you can about your craft and, you know, learn from the mistakes of others because you'll never live long enough to make them all yourself. So that's, that's a great, great way. way. To, yeah, yep. that's a great way to put it. So I was going to say also um, that you so I'll, one thing I wanted to ask about, I want to make sure we don't miss this. Spin training always comes up as the thing, right? I guess in Canada, you have to do it. Um, and people have different, I don't know if it's 
fiction or not. They say, you know, the reason why the FAA stopped doing or requiring spin training is because it's so dangerous. Um, and there were more <laughs> fatalities with spin training than actual spins or something to that effect. I don't know if that's real. Um, but just what are your thoughts on uh, spin training and what's your sort of experience or learnings in, in that realm relative to a newer private pilot, what you would suggest? Is that something, you know, like definitely go out and do that right away or, you know? Uh, definitely. I mean, not only spin training, but some mild aerobatic training. Because another thing that I, that I see missed a lot on most new pilots is really getting to learn how to fly an airplane. Most pilots, when they're starting off, you know, they, they'll, they, their idea of a steep bank is 30 degrees and pitching up and pitch down. You know, they're, they're, they're very timid on what they want to do with the airplane. And someday you might need to do a really steep bank or a really steep dive or something and really learn how to fly that airplane, not just drive it. I mean, I see people like, well, my, you know, this speed and that speed and my turn does this and uh, this minute's like, cover all that stuff up, look out of the clear parts of the airplane and go fly the dang thing, you know, do stalls, do accelerated stalls, go out with an instructor and do, you know, do a hammerhead, you know, figure out, you know, don't, don't do maneuvers prescribed by the FAA, feel it. That's like when I'm teaching people how to skydive, you know, they say, well, how do I do this exactly? It's like, you just do it. Just, you know, screw around and get comfortable with your aircraft and you'll be a better pilot for it because someday you might have, to, you know, like like a, a steep turn. Maybe you look up and, oh, my God, there's another airplane 200 feet from you right on. And you don't want to have a nice, timid 30-degree bank. You want to have the confidence to know that I'm banging this yoke over as hard as I can and I'm pulling all the way back. And even if it spins after I pass this guy, I can handle this. You know, be, be, have confidence in, what, in your skills and always improve your skills. So. Yes, to spin training. It's a long answer. Awesome. No, that's great. That's great advice. Um, if you guys are with us in the chat uh, tonight as we record this live every other Wednesday night, uh, be sure to be asking your questions uh, for our guest tonight, Carrie McCauley, who's here, um, who's authored a book, Ferry Pilot, Nine Lives Over the North Atlantic. It's available everywhere, and it's also available on uh, your website, which is really cool, by the way. I was checking it out earlier today. Here's a look at it, uh, kerrymccauley.com. It's K-E-R-R-Y-M-C-C-A-U-L-E-Y.com. You can learn all about the book, get uh, autographed copies there, and um, find ways to, uh, yeah, check that out. It's some good stuff there. I have a question, Carrie, uh, about writing a book. Um, I don't have anything interesting enough I've done in my life to write one, but I'm interested in other people that have, what was the greatest, um, I mean, that's, that's quite an endeavor, right? Um, you, you know, I'm, how, what was the greatest challenge in terms of writing that? Because you do have so many stories, you have, you know, some purpose about the book, you, you you have to cut things. You have to decide, you know, what's, what's here and, and what's important and, and actually write it. What was the greatest sort of a uh, challenge or goal or outcome with the book that, that strikes you? Now, the first one is basically just the big, the challenge was, am I a good writer? You know, I mean, I knew I had good stories, but when you're going to put a book out and have lots of people see it and, Right, like a third grader, that might be kind of kind of embarrassing, but turns out that people are like the style, so that was good. 
after that, it's, you know, trying to decide what people will find interesting. Um, I just finished my second book. It should be out next month. And it's all about more ferry flying and uh, entire trips versus just little snippets. And, you know, you're, I, I write to an aviation audience, and that helps a lot because we're all aviation geeks and the, the stupidest little details we all like. You know, like I try to make my book entertaining enough for non-pilots, but I don't sacrifice the details for the, the pilots because we're all we're all about the details. You know, it's like, plus, if you're inaccurate, you'll get called on it <laughs> okay, for sure. <laughs> Big time. Well, uh, one dull geek has a great question here, Chris. Um, yep. and it's really, I like it too, because it's, it's kind of like, Hey, this is all great. I love the scud running idea that, that, and that as a, as something of import. So how, you know, so he's asking, uh, you know, including that in training, uh, what would you do, uh, to include that into training or is there some plan or methodology that can be shared that, uh, you know, that Mark can take his you know, to his CFI and say, Hey, I saw this guy carry on the internet. And he said, uh, that I should do this with you. Well, that's a tough one because of course, everybody's definition of scud running is different. Um, I was talking to a good friend of mine who just recently got his private pilot's license and this subject came up and I suggest to him that he fly back home that day in his 172 at a thousand feet AGL. And that, that number scared the heck out of him. And I was thinking that was very conservative and that's pattern altitude. That's not, in my opinion, that's not low at all, but for a lot of guys that is, I mean, they think they're tooling around a thousand feet. That's crazy dangerous. If your engine quits, you only have a couple minutes to find a place to land. Um, but practicing scud running is, is tough and dangerous because if you are low, your options are limited. You could hit stuff. So, it's not really something, I mean, say, I want to make myself really clear on this when I'm talking about it. I'm not encouraging scud running. Myself, right. I love scud running and do it all the time. Don't tell the FAA. Uh, <laughs> I've done a lot of it over the years. But I'm very skilled at it. And when I do it in planes, I do it in planes that are IFR certified. I have all the tools at my disposal and the skills that if I push things a little too far, I can just say, well, this has gone far enough. I shoot straight up, pop up IFR clearance, continue on. Um, so perhaps maybe it's something along the lines of um, you, you would simulate it on some level and say, okay, we're going to come up with a magic uh, sort of fake ceiling at a thousand feet. And we're going to go to an area where we know that there's a lot of good alternative places to land if we need to, and some good fields around. And, and uh, I really liked what you said about um, you know, one of the things you said that it just wouldn't have dawned on me, um, at least not to the extent you said, you know, slow down. And of course I would be thinking maybe slow down, but when you actually said, you know, put the flaps out like that, when you said that, it just it, it clicked in my brain. I wouldn't have thought of that. I thought about it while we were on our beach fly in, Brian. <laughs> Quick <laughs> so story. I had it. my, I had, well, uh, because I had my 235 there and these guys had little, like a 172 and oh, yeah. 140 that we're trying to like, we were trying to kind of go together. And I'm like, I might have to like put my flaps in and like pull things way back and like kind of stay up there. But yeah, no, I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm sorry. That's <laughs> yeah. Now, now the flaps thing, that's like an extreme. I mean, you can always slow down, but the flaps thing is like extreme. You've got pushed down to, you know, three, 400 feet. And you're really just tiptoeing along, just trying to extricate, you know, get yourself out of that situation. Um, you know, another thing that you can practice on though, I just thought of is 
you know, navigation becomes a big thing because when you are scud running in those conditions, obstacles pop up in your way, you know, snow showers, rain showers, TV towers, mountains, stuff like that. So you want to make sure you're avoiding those, you know, fly around that stuff. Now, of course, if you fly three or four miles to the left to get around some big rain shower, now you're off course and you're possibly a little lost. Um, know how to get yourself back on course. I mean, if you got a GPS, just hit direct to your destination and there's your new destination. Don't try to drag yourself back over to your original one. Um, but also training, looking for towers ahead of you. You know, most GPSs will point those things out. Where am I? What's my altitude? What are my real dangers here? Um, stuff like that. And also looking at your, your options on where to go. You know, yes, if you're going to be stubborn and continue on to your destination, can't help you. Good luck. <laughs> but you don't have to do that. You can find another airport. Look at, you know, if you've got um, weather on your iPad, you know, hey, look, just uh, 10 miles north of me, there's an airport that's VFR and it's got 2,000 foot ceilings. And maybe I'll head that way and get the heck out of here. So that's some stuff you can train with. Do you think that there should be some uh, maneuvers that are actually required in the ACS that just are not included? Um, I don't know, Dutch rolls or I don't know, something that uh, do you have any, like, uh, I'm, I guess I'm, I'm trying to th think from the standpoint of actually the ACS and maneuvers and just, you know, what, if anything, I mean, cause honestly, like on my, on my check ride, we did no maneuvers. We, uh, and, well, I'm sorry. We did steep turns. We did maneuvers, but I'm sorry. Ground reference maneuvers. We just considered the pattern ground reference, right. Or whatever. So anyway, Chris, go ahead. Well, no, I'm just going to say like, I, I, I mean, I would interject one immediately, which is, I, I think it's a mistake that in the private pilot ACS, it's no longer required to do a power off 180 in the pattern. To, to me, that like a fundamental level of like knowing how to fly your airplane is knowing how it's going to glide if you've got to find yourself somewhere so the fact that that's not required anymore to me is kind of a is a is a is a disadvantage to the private pilot frankly um, yeah that's a good one that's that's like inadvertent scud running is one of my pet subjects but the other is the engine out no you know impossible turn debate that um I, I think people avoid that and the CFIs avoid that and just basically say, until you're at 15,000 feet straight ahead, no matter what's in front of you. And I'm like, ah, that's not my opinion at all. But you have to practice that um, because just, just briefly on that subject, the reason guys crash and stall spin in that situation is because they can't bring themselves to accept the fact that they're going to crash, that they're going to land off the airport. Because up until that point in their flying career, every time they've pulled back on the yoke, the plane has gone up because the engine's been running. And they don't learn that the power off 180 or whatever, they don't learn how to manage your airspeed when it's when that's all you have. When the mm -hmm. energy that your altitude and you've got in your airspeed is gone, it's gone. And the only way to get it back is lowering your nose. Pulling back on the yoke isn't going to gonna do anything so biggest shock to me in transitioning from my training in a 172 and at very low hours i mean i had like 110 hours i think when i transitioned to a 235 cherokee 235 was how shocking the glide characteristics of those two airplanes was and it took me a really long time I'm still i'm still not comfortable i told these guys i i had to take the 235 to the fly and i would have way rather taken the 172 for putzing around the beach i'm just so much more comfortable still in that plane 
235 is still heavy and weird for me and but it was shocking to me the difference in just how that thing flew with no power i mean the the 235 if you're not turning to the numbers if you're in the pattern during a power funnel if you don't turn to the numbers the second you pull that throttle back you're not making it to the runway i mean it's just not um and in the, in the 172 you might as well just go out and like make a phone call and like figure <laughs> out what you're doing and you know come back around and you're fine but yeah i think that's i think that's a great point and bearded aviator i think has another really good one this is something else i've never done carrie and i mean i've never i have never experienced an accelerated stall uh, in a turn, uh, I've, I've never done a turning stall or an accelerated stall in my training. Yeah. Most guys, you know, they're literally too scared to try it. You know, it's like, well, I kind of, you know, they, they get it. So it nibbles at it a bit, but it, most planes, you got to be pretty aggressive with it to get to it, to the accelerated stall. So, you know, go out with an aerobatic instructor and, See, see where she breaks loose. See where where is the edge? Because if you don't know where the edge is, you don't know how what your aircraft can really do. Right. Um, Jason Vaughn, uh, who's in the chat tonight, says wanted to ask you um, any issues communicating with uh, air traffic control in other countries. Yeah, that's sometimes quite quite challenging because the controllers are all all have to speak English, but sometimes their accents are really tough. Um, I was flying over uh, Bangladesh one time and foreign controllers are allowed to speak their native tongue to local pilots, which kind of Mm. annoys me because, you know, a French controller will speak French to an air, you know, a air France pilot. And it kind of takes me out of the loop. It hurts my situational awareness a little bit, but I'd been handed off to a new, a new controller in, um, in Burma. And, um, and I heard the controller talking to somebody in, in some foreign language. I didn't know what it was. And I figured, okay, he's just talking to a local, and I wait my turn to check in. And then I heard the pilot he was talking to answer him back in English. And I realized, oh, crap, that guy was – the original guy was speaking English, and I didn't understand a single word he said. So wow. I say the words say again quite often on a ferry trip. I just did that about three times on the trip. I was just on <laughs> in Nashville. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I, I had a I had a funny one today because the the Nashville approach said to me um, they, they called me out and they said uh, and I was about ten miles to the southwest of the airport uh, and they said um, I thought he said are you on a right downwind for runway two zero and. I said, so I responded to a negative. I'm, you know, whatever, 13 miles from the field or whatever. And he was like, he was so pissed. He was like, are, or you, like, you, how do you say it? Like, you are to join the, like, basically, you, you, this, I'm telling you what to do. I'm not asking you not where, where you are. are. Yeah. Uh, he was not thrilled. Uh, so I didn't, uh. I didn't record it. It was fun. But, um, but anyway, so, so, uh, so Carrie, one of the, things i wonder about uh is i find and i think others have had this uh dilemma um especially as a newer pilot um luckily we have spouses in most cases or friends that do not value their lives um and are willing to trust us enough to come up with us um and that's great um but even still when they get up there they start to realize that they do value their lives and then now they they um 
you know, maybe they're having second thoughts about what's going on. So I guess my, I've, I've thought a lot about and very much focused on the craft of making other, you know, making passengers comfortable that are perhaps nervous or, or whatever. And I feel like in private pilot training, there's not enough. I mean, they, they say, here's a couple of things you should brief your passengers and here's the fire extinguisher and make sure you open your door when I tell you to right before we hit the ground and, you know, have a nice day. And that's about like what you get, but there's a lot of, there's a lot more nuance to, um, I learned a lot on my check ride actually about, you know, sort of tricks to get people's ears sorted out or motion sickness things or, or whatever. So I didn't know if there's anything you had to offer from experience about, uh, dealing with maybe nervous or apprehensive passengers. Yeah. <sighs> Don't fly with them. <laughs> Don't fly with them. <laughs> They're really annoying. <laughs> um, you know, they like a smooth ride, so I don't know if you've noticed it, but the turbulence usually ends at the level at the cloud layer. So if you got a day that's a broken or scattered layer, get up above there so it smooths out. Um, remind them to when you're descending to clear the ears often so it doesn't, you know, doesn't build up. Try and avoid showing off steep banks you know fly as smooth as possible that's that's kind of thing you know when i've when i was a young man i thought it was pretty funny to you know do the zero g thing and try to scare my passengers i was flying back from um, my grandparents with my brother and sister in a 210 one time and listening to the twins game at the world series and kirby puckett hit the home run and i pulled it up into a near vertical <laughs> climb and pushed it over hard and when we came out of it, my sister hit me on the back of the head so hard, I thought she was going to have to land the planes. <laughs> <laughs> so don't do that. Got it. No, no World Series listening. Okay. Yeah. No. We got about, over, like over an ADF? Like mm -hmm. AM radio style? Yep. Nice. I used to do that. We used to do that before we took the ADF. We did redid the panel on the 172 and and took it out. But for a long time, we were listening to uh, our local uh, news talk station uh, here in Morgantown on it every time we were flying. Yeah, <laughs> it's that's funny. That's the 100% reason I left mine in my 182. It's like there yeah, you go. <laughs> yeah, I tell people it's a clothesline for you know uh, camping. Uh, <laughs> but but yeah, so so in, in terms of. Uh, if you've done it all, what's next or how, like what are your goals going forward from here or what's the thing? It could be outside of aviation, it could be whatever. Um, but what, what, what's next? Well, you know, I've flown all over the world by myself essentially for so long. I really want to take other people with, I mean, I was able to take my best friend on a ferry flight from Florida to, well, it was going to be to Thailand, but the plane died halfway there, which is a really good story that will be in my next book. Um, my goal, my I dream trip right now that I'm working on is my personal plane is a Queen Air, Beach Queen Air, which is a piston mm -hmm. version of the King Air. Mm -hmm. And I want to fly from the U.S. down the Caribbean, down the east side of South America, touch Antarctica, which is the only continent I've never visited, and then fly back up the west coast of South America, up Central America, and back to the U.S. That's a that's a trip I want to hit. Wow! So just kind of some easy stuff to wrap it up. You know. Yeah, yeah, little, little trip. You know. <laughs> I already flew around the world once, so I can't do that anymore. So 
Mm, Let's get back to Greenland too. Greenland's pretty awesome to fly in. It's not that far. Man, here I am looking at like I got to get from West Virginia to like North Carolina. It's like an hour and forty minutes. I'm like, man, that's. This has been real inspiring, Kerry. Like we're all just going to hang it up after this. Like there's just no point. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm just. I've I've been really lucky. I mean, I I got in back back in the golden age of ferry flying. I mean, before GPS, I got eight trips with nothing but a compass and a map. And, you know, I've been really fortunate to have all the adventures and stuff that I've I've had. And, you know, I I try not to come off as I've been there, done that, but I kind of haven't. My son, he's he's really jealous. He wants to go with me. He takes his he takes his check ride on the 20th. He's got nine days to go and he's going to be oh, a private good pilot. For him. Wow. So are you, um, irrationally nervous for your son or just totally confident? No, like that kid, he's way too good. He's, he's yeah. already way better skydiver than me. He's a good instructor. And mm. he's, he's, he took two years off of flying. He was, is a black Hawk crew chief and he went to Iraq and he came back and he hadn't touched an airplane in two years. So I went up and flew with him and his landings were just as good as mine. And it was like, well, you, you're just frustrating. It's <laughs> good though. It's, it's you know, there's there's natural talent, and I like that. Well, so we got to wrap this up here in a second, but I wanted to maybe punctuate this with just one thing. You know, a lot of what we uh, do here is we have a lot of community around people that are you know struggling through training, and it's you know for for us mere mortals, it's it's a difficult uh, thing, especially when you're getting to that point, when you're learning how to land and when you're just trying to get past your first solo, it's, it seems, especially in, in midlife, you know, we talk about this a lot, you know, how like we're, we're not good at sucking at anything at this point, right? Like we've been doing something expertly otherwise in our lives for a long period of time. And then now we're, you know, morons in this new realm and just trying to figure it out. So, um, what, what would you, uh, what words of wisdom would you leave for, for people that are, you know, uh, not even as far as Chris and I, you know, that are just trying to get to that check ride. You know, everybody, all the great pilots that you've ever heard about have been exactly where you were. And we all struggled. We all had our difficulties. Um, you know, one thing I tell people on landings, struggling with landings is don't be so mechanical. Try to feel it just like landing a parachute. But just keep swinging. It'll, it'll come. Well, we have a few minutes left, Carrie. Definitely want to um, give everybody the opportunity to hear from you. What, what um, uh, in terms of your, uh, your book that's out now and your new one that's coming out, what's uh, some preferred methods? How do people find you? How do people find it? How do they get a hold of uh, ferry pilots out now? And then your book that's coming out soon. Okay. Well, easiest is on Amazon. Go ferry pilot and uh, the new one, it's supposedly called dangerous flights, but I'm waiting to hear from a lawyer about that. Um, <laughs> there was the TV show thing. So, uh, um, or you can go, like you mentioned my website, if you want to sign copy, you know, they're going to be worth tens of dollars someday. So you got to get one of those <laughs> carrymccauley.com or come find me at Oshkosh this year. I've been sharing a booth again. I want to, I think it was building three and I'll bring one you already bought and I'll sign it or buy one there. But uh, nice. Did Oshkosh last year for my first time. We flew to um, 
Milwaukee because I was too scared to fly in. I was, I mean, I was super fresh right then. I had probably like 80 hours. I'm like, yeah, no, I'm not flying into Oshkosh, but we'll go to Milwaukee and drive over. And so we did that. And it was, it was pretty awesome. That was my first Oshkosh after I had got my certificate. So I got to spend three or four days out there and it was, it was pretty incredible. Now you got to fly in. Flying in, it's not that hard. It's, it sounds intimidating, but. If unless you go like the first day, then it's kind of a zoo. But I've watched a bunch of videos, so I feel like <laughs> you know, like everything else in 2022. Like I've seen it on YouTube. I'm an expert. Yes, right. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, hey man, Carrie, I can't thank you enough. Uh, it's been actually very helpful and very insightful, and I think our our audience will get a lot uh, out of this. There's a lot of a lot of wisdom to be had there, and and. And some good laughs, and we didn't even get to the poop or pee story. So uh, maybe we'll we'll have a maybe we'll come back just to focus on that uh, another time. <laughs> You've got do it again. Good. I've got to. Yeah, that's a that's a whole other that's a whole other story. <laughs> it's a whole other podcast. Yeah, yeah. Other yeah. Podcast. Well, I, all, all I know is that um, you know, like when you're doing a flight plan and you say like your plane is white, and then you know, like what the accents are. I, I just know that you have had a plane with brown accent, brown and yellow accent. <laughs> thanks yeah reminded me of that one yeah oh but you know all right well chris get us out of here and and yeah again man thanks everybody for joining us thank you carrie very much again carrie mccauley uh really appreciate your time tonight and it was great chatting with you and and hearing some of your stories and uh appreciate your time we'll check out your book for sure and um hopefully see you in oshkosh that would be fantastic all right good talking to you guys thank you sir Good night, everyone. Thank you for joining us. Oh, there's the close-up look. If you're watching on YouTube, we don't like it. Why do we do that? Thanks for joining us. We'll see you in two weeks. Two weeks for uh, episode 15. Brian, thank you for potting with me as always. Yeah, man. And let's get some videos out. We've got, I've got one coming. You've got one coming. I got I'm one sure. coming. Yep. Uh, so uh, be looking out for those. And thanks, everybody, for being here. Yep. Talk to you soon. <laughs>